Welcome to the first in a series of interviews on disinformation and the threat it poses to democracy in the EU. This series is produced by Europe Direct Blanchestown Library, part of the Fingon Network of Libraries. In this first interview, I spoke to Ricardo Castellini da Silva about disinformation in a social media context. Ricardo is a media educator and researcher at DCU and is also a member of Media Literacy Ireland. Welcome, Ricardo, and thank you for speaking to me at Europe Direct Blanchestown today uh, about this really important subject. Hello, Barry. Thank you very much for having me. So I'd just like to start off maybe by uh, defining a few terms. I- I've often heard terms like misinformation, disinformation, even one I heard recently, malinformation. And I think we've all heard fake news. Could you maybe tell us a little bit about those terms, define them? What are the differences between them? You know, Barry, there's a lot of terms, as you said, out there. And even among scholars in the fields, sometimes we don't have a, a full agreement about what they, they mean. And people have been using these terms in, in different way. Um, generally speaking, when we say disinformation, we're talking about disinfor- uh, false information, information that is not true and that is spread deliberately. So there's a purpose in doing this, okay? So this is generally what we understand by disinformation. And then misinformation would be false information, but that is spread without the intent. So for example, if I receive something on my WhatsApp and I'm not really careful with that information, so I don't check the sources, so I don't understand that this is a, a false information and I just decide to share with someone else. So I'm contributing to the spread of disinformation or false information, but I didn't do this on purpose. I didn't do this because I wanted to harm someone or I wanted to lie, but I did. So this is still some kind of misinformation instead of disinformation. The term mall information, I came across a, a, a few months ago, I think it was in a handbook of journalism in the um, launched by UNESCO. Uh, and this has more to do with like information that is based on reality. So it's not completely false, uh, but again, it's used to cause some harm to people. So it's based on, on some truth, but it, it is used in a way, is manipulated in a way that can cause harm to people. It's like the situation when, you know, you, you, uh, a certain event takes place. And so that's a fact but then you're going to manipulate the way you're going to say this in order to deceive people. So this would be understood as mole information. But like, but but to be honest, nowadays, as I can see, most people are just using disinformation for everything. So we are combining all that into the word disinformation just to make easier for people to understand, you know. And fake news is a term that again is quite uh, uh, controversial uh, uh, because if it's news. It, it shouldn't be false, you know, it's, it's kind of weird to say fake news, um, but basically means information that is not true or news that is not true. It's, it's not based on facts. It's not based on reality. We could define like that. Okay, so, so basically when we're talking about misinformation, different information, one is deliberate. Yeah. Designed, and the other, not so much. Malinformation yeah. can be, you know, information used to do harm. And you can see the, the, the term mal in there. Um, and, and then fake news is something I think we're all familiar with. And, and I think one of the issues with fake news is sometimes it can be used to maybe tar something that is maybe true. If somebody doesn't want to be, well, oh, that's just fake news. So it, it can also be used that way. Am I right in saying that? Uh, yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's what I'm saying. It's quite, it's quite confusing the way people have been using the word fake news nowadays. I think you remember when Donald Trump, for example, started using fake news to call all media outlets fake news. You know, so this caused confusion in, in the minds of people. And sometimes you, you're just making a joke or you, you're saying something just, you know, to, to have a laugh, uh, 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 but it's not necessarily to cause any harm. And then people say, well, but is this fake news or is this not fake news? Or, for example, if a journalist make a mistake and journalists eventually make a mistake, you know, sometimes this happens. And then people say, well, but is this fake news or not? Well, it's different because fake news understand the idea that uh, a, a, a news was fabricated 
so it's not something that I said because, uh, you know, I had a, um, I don't know, the, my source of information was not really good or I made a mistake in evaluating some kind of information or the way I, I express myself was not in the best way. So some people are trying to put fake news, uh, everything into the fake news box. And usually they do this when they want to cause harm to someone else. So if I have an argument with someone and I want to win the argument, I just say, oh, no, everything he said is fake news. But it's not as simple as that. You know, we, we have to be more careful with the way we use this, this word, definitely. Yeah, I mean, th things are, we often say things aren't always black and white. There's usually shades of grey involved there. Yeah. And, and the, the label fake news can be used, as you say, to kind of sow doubt. Uh, yeah. or cause confusion. But what I want to ask you now, Ricardo, is why is there so much disinformation and, and so-called fake news across especially social media platforms? Why now? Why is there so much of it? You know, Barry, I think first we need to understand that this information has always been out there. I mean, this is not something new. Probably since we developed language thousands of years ago, we start saying things that are not True. I mean, uh, um, we started creating fiction and fake stories. So this is the first thing. This information is not something new. But what happened nowadays, and I think today we're going to discuss this in more detail. But uh, but uh, if I had to summarize, I would say that this is because since the emergence of the internet and the digital media uh, technologies, it became much easier to both produce and spread any kind of information both good and bad information, okay? So before, for example, if you wanted to create a content and, and put this content out for people to read or watch, it was very difficult. It was very expensive uh, uh, to do that. Nowadays, if you have a, a basic smartphone and a fair internet connection, you become a media producer and you can start creating any content. And I think this is not necessarily bad. On the contrary, there's a lot of people out there creating amazing content, you know, very cheaply. I mean, um, and uh, in, in fields of education, showing their work or for arts or music and whatever. So this is not necessarily bad. However, we have to understand that not all information out there are good quality information. Not all the people out there are really interested in creating good quality content. So I would say that the main reason that now we have, especially social media platforms, as you said, is because it's very easy. Uh, and the platforms themselves, the way they are structured, favor uh, uh, this spread of, of uh, uh, disinformation. That's something I'm, I'm going to go into uh, a little bit later. And as you said, I mean, this... I suppose, I mean, I'm doing it right now. I'm creating content at this very second with you, hopefully high quality content. I think so. Um, but as you said, it's, it's so easy. You, you pick up a, a smartphone and you, you can put a video out to thousands, if not millions of people very cheaply, very easily yeah, and, yeah. And, and develop an audience. So, yeah, I mean, it's something I mean. As you said, there was a time if you wanted to put out information, you had to get a book published or an article in the newspaper or something like this. It was expensive. It wasn't accessible. Whereas now anybody can and, and anybody does. I suppose that's the times we're living in. And, and I want to just ask you now about the the actual the business models of these digital platforms themselves. So the social media company, search engines, that type of thing. Um, I mean, obviously, these companies, they're businesses. I mean, they are businesses, and, and, and the aim of a business is to make a profit. That's, that's to be expected. But how does this business model affect the spread of disinformation? Well, this, um, you know, there are many different ways in which they affect this information. Um, as you said, like there are businesses and they want to make profit. And how do they make profit? Because sometimes people don't realize that they are not paying for the service, right? So for example, if you have an account on Facebook or Instagram, or like when you do a research on Google, you're not paying for this, right? Uh, it's free, but actually it is, well, if you're not paying for this, somebody has to pay because they, as you said, they're a business, they want to make profit. So we are not giving money to them, but we are giving something else, which is our data. So that's, that's the gold, actually, of this digital age. The most important thing for these companies uh, is our data. So every time you go online 
every time you're doing a research on Google or any other search engine, or every time you're on Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat, you're leaving traces of information about yourself, about your preferences, about things you like, things you don't like, people you like, people you don't like, uh, music that you listen to, and very detailed information, actually. So they use this information to create kind of uh, digital profiles about us, and they use these digital profiles to create a kind of fragmented, uh, uh, segmented audience. And they use the segmented audience to sell to advertisers. So if I want to publicize something on Facebook, uh, let's say I have, a, I don't know, a, a shop that sells uh, shoes. So I want that, I know that my customers are men and women between 35, 45, they like outdoor activities and they usually go to the cinema and, and so forth. I mean, I can narrow down as much as I want and I can ask Facebook, okay, this is my audience, where are they? And Facebook will give me this information. So this is like gold for, for, for marketeers, you know, in the world. I mean, you, you can actually reach the audience without spending too much money and wasting time and money with, uh, you know, trying to, to reach people that are completely outside of the scope of your, of your target. So this is the first thing. I mean, they're collecting information about us. And to do so, they have to keep us connected uh, for the longest time possible, because that's the way they collect information about us. So, uh, but the thing, Barry, is that to keep us connected doesn't mean that they will uh, uh, necessarily care about the quality of the interaction I'm having. Okay. Because, and then is where the business model comes in. Because, you know, it's, it's, it's quantity over quality. So the clicks are more important than what exactly I'm saying. Do you know what I mean? So as long as I keep clicking and going through different pages and commenting and sharing and this stuff, this is what actually makes this business move. So this is one thing that is, it makes this information uh, more, um, more available, let's say, in this, in this kind of, of platforms. Uh, another thing has to do with monetization, you know? So again, if I have a website, I can try to make some money, you know, uh, um, through ads uh, on this website. And this is good. I mean, this is not something bad. I think there's a lot of people out there creating very nice content and they can make some profit. And I think this is totally fine. The problem again is that um, for companies such as Facebook or Google or, or, or on YouTube, they're not as much worried with the quality of content as they are with the, 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 the quantity, right? Mm -hmm. So again, there are a lot of websites out there with very poor quality content and sometimes dangerous content, yeah. and they are using monetization to make money. And, and, and then some people say, well, but, but how come that these companies don't find these websites and, and they bring them down? Well, sometimes they do. Like it happens with YouTube, for example. Sometimes they find some videos that are harmful and they bring them down, but not, you know, it's not always clear because some, some people, they create content that not, it's not, uh, um, I mean, it's not clearly harmful, you know, sometimes you have like a one and a half hour video and, and you have to watch the one and a half hour video to find something in the media that you see, you know, maybe someone saying that vaccines don't work, for example. Yeah. So it's not easy to find these videos. It's not, it's not easy to bring them down. The companies are working on that. Not only the companies. I mean, now they're being pressured, you know, by the society, by governments to actually um, look after this and, and, and avoid this kind of content. But again, so the, the very business model, the way people make money with this also favors the spread of, of this information. Because if you have a, a website and you register your website with Ad, Google AdSense, for example, yeah. which is one of the uh, one of the main uh, um, uh, companies out there. You can actually just make m money with clicks. Yes, and yeah, I've used it. I've used it. Yeah, absolutely. It's and, and it's, the issue is, I suppose sometimes the, the poor quality content can be quite profitable. Would I be right yeah, in saying that? Exactly. That's the issue. Exactly. Yeah, because this, the, another thing, Barry, is if there is a demand, there will be content. And human beings are 
very, uh, you know, varied in terms of what they like, what they don't like. Uh, and, and there are people like that who believe in whatever you, you know, they want to believe. And I think we have to respect people's differences and diversity, of course. But, uh, but like, for example, in terms of conspiracy theories, there's a lot of people out there who want to consume these conspiracy theories. They, they like that. They, they feel good about that. So as long as there will be people uh, willing to consume this, this kind of content, there will be people producing this content for them. Why? Because they can make money. So if they didn't make money, it would be much more difficult for them just to spread this information around. But because they're making a lot of profit, as you said, so, you know, as long as there is a, an audience for this, there will be people uh, uh, producing. And then you, you say, okay, but how we can fix this? Uh, well, again, the digital platforms will have to find these videos and check how harmful they are and then bring them down, you know? And this, this is being going on around the world. I mean, the, some videos are actually um, being blocked on YouTube and websites in, in general, when they find these websites, they are bring them down. But it's hard to do it because moderation is not easy, you know. Yeah, and I know what you. I mean, you, you, we've all seen these articles. You know, seven ways to lose weight. Number five will shock you, and it's clickbait. It's just to pull people in. And if you ever click on these, they tend to be very poor quality, and they usually want you to click through to number two and number three and you get bombarded with more and more adverts and I mean we, we, we've all seen that I suppose um, so yeah as you say the business model you, you wonder is there an incentive there to deal with this because it's so it's so profitable um, and that's something I will ask you a little bit about later um, and it's something I covered um, with your, your colleague Eileen Collity as well um, when talking about the EU code on disinformation Mm -hmm. And I just want to ask you now, I mean, we've spoken about the business model of, of these digital platforms. I want to ask you a little bit now about the design itself of these digital platforms. So how do the design features of these platforms actually influence the way people interact and engage with online content? Well, you know, as we, we, we said, I mean, they, uh, these companies, they need to keep us connected or hooked uh, for uh, uh, as long as possible. So, of course, that you have to create a very interesting and appealing uh, digital environment for, for us to be there. So this comes to the idea of design. So the design they use in this platform, not only this platform, but in, in, on our phone as well, you know, uh, so all, all the digital devices that we have, they are designed to attract our attention as much as possible, and once we are there, they want us to stay there for the longest time possible. So basically, those two ideas: draw attention and keep us hooked, so that uh, we will be there, and we not only be there, but we will be there interacting. Because this is another thing that we have to do. They don't want us to be passive consumers, just watching videos and watching the timeline. No, they want us to keep doing stuff, doing things, because this generates more uh, uh, traffic and as a consequence it generates more advertisements they, they have more opportunities for advertisement for advertisements to appear for you so basically that's the way uh, it works so they design things in a way that will attract our attention and here i mean there are many different things we, we can talk about for example the the like button you know everyone likes to receive a like when you post something you know this is this is something that triggers a very good feeling when you when you say something on social media somebody goes there and give you a like or or make a comment even better you know oh this is amazing you go you feel like uh, really um a dopamine uh, reaction isn't there a kind of a yeah, yeah. you're part of a group and you feel that you are important in some way, you know, uh, uh, every, every person reacts in a different way, but, you know, you, you feel good about it. Um, notifications as well. So again, you know, all the time you're getting notifications about what's going on. And then you go, you look at your only mobile phone and there's a red things flashing there. Uh, and it's not red you know, by accidents, because the color red is really strong and is powerful. So you want to click and check what's going on. You don't want to wait until later to do it. So even if you're working, you go, okay, I need to, maybe somebody, somebody liked my post, somebody re replied to me. Uh, so you, you, again, you're, you're being drawn 
to the, the device and going online uh, uh, again. Uh, uh, other features, for example, like the autoplay. So you, you, you're watching a video and the video ends and another one starts straight away. So you don't have time to think. Even if you were thinking about, okay, I need to do something else now, but you don't have time to do it. But another one, it's going to start in a sequence. I think so we've all fallen down the YouTube rabbit, rabbit hole. Where you watch something and then some, oh, look at this. Oh, oh, this is, and then you're on a totally different topic uh, from what you began on, you know, it, you, yeah, absolutely. You start reading an article and after 40 minutes, you're watching a cat playing with a dog and you go like, what am I doing here? And you look at a watch and 40 minutes have passed, you know, and, and this goes like this every day. So, uh, uh, so yeah, so so that's the the way they want it to be there. So they are gonna throw a lot of nice content to us and create an environment full of features that will uh, uh, draw our attention all the time and try to keep us there. You know, like for example, when they recommend friends, there's a reason for that. I mean, the more friends you have, the more chances that you're gonna interact with these friends. And that you be, you know, interacting with the platform and clicking and commenting and so stuff. So they are always saying, "Well, do you know this person? You know, do you do you look this guy here?" So th that's that's one of the features they have uh, uh, about, you know, to in terms of design to keep us hooked all the time. Yeah, yeah, and, and people, of course, love the idea. I mean, you say, "Oh, I've got five hundred friends," you know, but like, how many are actually? <laughs> Your, your friends, uh, you know, but it, yeah, it seems to be about producing this kind of positive, almost fuzzy feeling. Oh, isn't it great? People liked my content or, and, and, and am I right in saying that sometimes I've seen this particularly on the likes of uh, YouTube or even Reddit, for example, and um, these places can turn into battlegrounds as well. Yeah. Uh, I've seen the comment sections descend into, but, but people seem to enjoy that nearly, the, 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 the back and forth. You, you see it on Facebook too. Oh yeah, um, oh yeah. No, you you see this in all the platforms, not only on social media platforms, but actually in website, news websites. Uh, uh, yeah, it, it became like a battleground, you know. Especially if you are uh, in some, for example, um, close to to elections, and then you know the the climate changes a little bit, and people get really angry, and the polarization comes about uh so yeah i mean we we've seen this a lot and the thing is usually barry the way people behave on social media is not necessarily the same way they behave outside you know if you put the same people uh face to face to talk about the same topic they will not be as aggressive as they are uh, on social media because on That's, social media you're, you're kind of protected you know is it to be the anonymity of it as well and a lot of these you, you don't use your real name is, is that part yeah, of people feel braver but you know even if you are showing your name and i caught myself doing this you know uh, nowadays i i kind of uh, can control my my the way I, I express myself much better because we've been learning how to do this we, we can't forget that this is new I mean, this is totally yeah, new. We've done this. Yeah, absolutely. You're learning how to do that. So, uh, yes, I, I think sometimes because, first of all, when you express yourself in writing, it's different from the way you express yourself talking to somebody else. So the words you use sometimes can be, you know, quite harmful or you can be quite aggressive, even though it was not your intention. And the way people are interpreting what you're saying it's not the same way as you think they are interpreting. So we have this illusion that we, when we go online and we type something, the I don't know, thousand people who will read this, they will read this in the same way. And this is not true because you don't know, you know, if the person, I don't know, just woke up and she's in a very bad mood and, you know, she's gonna look at that in a, in a way. Uh, if maybe what you're saying, it, it, the person disagrees with you, she's gonna read in a different way. So. Each person will interpret what you're saying in a different way. But we have this feeling, this illusion that, oh, this is a perfect text. You know, I'm very clear about what I'm saying. I'm just going to throw this and everyone will understand. This doesn't happen. And then you have this, this battleground where people start getting really aggressive. And we've had, I mean, very bad um, experiences where like family members, you know, don't, don't, don't talk to each other anymore. I mean, they, they are... 
families are breaking up because of, of fights uh, on social media platforms. And often disinformation is, is at the root of this. Um, you know, this is how it says, and it's very hard to convey tone online as well. You write some very hard to convey tone. Exactly. Uh, usually, especially text is very cold. Absolutely. And just another term that, that's cropped up quite a lot is, is an algorithm. Could you maybe tell us what an algorithm is and, and what's its role, I suppose, in, in digital platforms and in the disinformation age in general? Well, an algorithm, Barry, could be described as a, as a kind of a set of instructions, okay, to achieve a certain goal. Probably a, a, a computer scientist would give a better answer than mine. But in, in summary, that, that's what an algorithm is. So it, it's, it's like a recipe. Okay, so if you want to, to cook, uh, uh, I don't know, a pasta and you need a recipe, you, you're going to follow the instructions and the result will be your pasta. So the, the algorithm is something like that. So you have a set of instructions. So A plus B plus C, if you combine those three things, it will result in this. So you give some instructions and you get, you'll have an output based on your instructions. So this is basically what an algorithm uh, uh, is. And the algorithms, they are, they are quite useful, actually. They, they, they are there to help us because they organize information for us. Because if we were to depend just on human beings to organize all this information, that would be impossible. So you need the algorithms to do that. So, the, so everything you're seeing online when you go to these social media platforms, uh, it's being organized by algorithms. Um, the problem is, first of all, we don't know exactly how these algorithms uh, um, work, okay? And, and they can, uh, especially, I mean, in terms of disinformation, which is the topic today, they can have some effects that are not really good for us. So, for example, I don't know if you've heard of the term filter bubble. So the filter bubble basically is the idea that you, you only receive information that you like, information that con, uh, conforms to, to your preferences, okay? So of course that, again, the social media platforms want you to enjoy your experience when you are there. So of course that they want to show you information that you're gonna like, uh, information that conforms to your uh, uh, preferences. So this is what we call future bubble. If you, if you go to Facebook, for example, and you're, you go on your timeline, for instance, I love football and Facebook knows that, of course. So if you go to my timeline, there's a lot of videos about football because Facebook goes, okay, Ricardo likes football. Let's give football to him, you know? Uh, and this with everything else. Uh, uh, so the algorithms, they are organizing this hierarchy. Why I'm seeing a post for from this friend and not from another friend. Why I'm seeing a video about football and not about music. Why this and why that? So algorithms, I'm making these decisions based on my personal preferences. So every single person will have a different experience when they are online. And this is because the algorithms create this for you. What's the problem with this? Of course that if you're talking about uh, football videos, this is not a problem, on the contrary. I, I like actually the fact that I get a lot of football videos. But if you're talking about more sensitive subjects such as politics, for example, then it's more complicated. Because if I am a left-wing person and I only receive content about left-wing, this will limit the way I experience reality around me because the world is not left-wing. We have other, other parts, uh, uh, other people with different views. And it is important that I see the other side. Because it is important that I confront my own ideas, my own convictions all the time. So um, we, we've been doing some research on filter bubbles. And apparently, in terms of news media, the effect is not as bad as we had predicted before. But there's still this effect of filter bubbles uh, in, on YouTube videos, for example, you know, where you... You, if you watch a video about conspiracy theories, then the algorithms will suggest another view. To, oh, about yeah, yeah. So you go down the, the rabbit hole, not because necessarily wanted, but because you're, you know, receiving these recommendations for that. Uh, uh, so those are the two things. Uh, first one is the future bubble. Uh, and the other thing is the recommendations of, of, of uh, algorithms. Those two characteristics of algorithms can help, not necessarily they do, but they can help with the spread of um, disinformation. 
And, and just kind of that leads really neatly on to the next question I wanted to ask you, because, I mean, what we're talking about here is, I suppose it creates a kind of echo chamber, doesn't it, really? You, yeah, you're only, you're, you're getting, and echo chamber is kind of the same concept. Yeah, you're yeah. getting to, to hear what you want. So, like, what are those main kind of psychological traits that we all have but and that influence how we behave and consume information online? So I'm talking about things linked to what you just said, like confirmation bias or groupthink or the, these type of things. So what, what are some of the examples of, of things we need to be wary of in ourselves when we're consuming information? I think this is this as a question is very important, Barry, because uh, usually when we discuss uh, disinformation and, and um, media literacy education, usually we tend to focus on the technologies themselves. Okay, so we look at the platforms and we go, "Oh, these platforms have some problems in terms of design, in terms of the business model, in terms of the way they are regulated or not regulated. We need to do something about that." This is fine, but we sometimes forget to look at ourselves because we are the consumers of information and news. And we tend to think that we think straight all the time. We have this illusion that our brain is kind of perfect and we, we deal with information in a very objectively way, uh, objective way all the time. But this is not true. And, and especially recently, um, people who work in the, the media literacy field have uh, come to realize that we, we also need to, to uh, do some research about our minds, how, how our minds work. You know, like you said, what are the psychological traits that we, we have, you know, and how we react to certain news, how we react when we are online, why do we behave the way we behave? And there have been a lot of studies about that, uh, showing, for example, that we, we think that we, we, we have a lot of knowledge about any issue, and, but we actually don't. You know, we, we are much less uh, smart than we think we are. Uh, uh, but the main trait, I guess, is confirmation bias, and especially in relation to uh, the spread of disinformation. And why is that so? Because... Well, first of all, what's confirmation bias, right? So confirmation bias is kind of the tendency that we have to favor information that confirms our existing beliefs or conforms to our existing uh, um, conviction, okay? And this is common to everybody. I mean, nobody escapes confirmation bias. And it's easy actually to spot. Like if you receive an information and you like this information, your first automatic reaction is go like, Oh, I like that. You know, this is this is good. I mean, it makes you feel good. So it doesn't matter whether or not it's true. It's just the fact that you you agree with that, just the fact that this makes you feel good is something that you make. Okay, so what am I going to do with this information? I'm going to share because I like it. And then is when it becomes really dangerous because a lot of people are not aware of this uh, uh, confirmation bias. So when they encounter information that pleases them for whatever reason, the reaction they have is not just like this information, but also share. So we need to be aware of our own flaws, our own uh, uh, limitations in terms of psychological traits. We need to understand that we tend to favor things that we like, but that doesn't mean that this information is, uh, um, is true. So this is especially uh, going on on WhatsApp groups, because on WhatsApp groups, unlike, unlike Facebook or Instagram, like on WhatsApp, you have very closed groups. Yeah. Uh, so the number of people are usually much smaller. So you have like 10, um, maybe 15 people, and the people are very alike. I mean, people from the same family or very close friends. And this is even more dangerous because when you receive something from, I don't know, your grandmother, you tend to think, well, my grandmother wouldn't send a fake news to me. She's my grandmother, you know? How come that? So then you have a, a double problem because you're going to receive this from somebody that you trust because she's your grandmother. And then you, you like the information. So you go, oh, my grandmother sent this to me. And this information is so good, sounds so beautiful to me. Of course, I'm going to share. And then you share this without checking you know, the source, without checking if it is accurate or not. 
So uh, this is very important. And this is something that is quite recent in the field of media literacy. And we are trying now to embed this idea of uh, using our psychological traits in the media literacy education. So when we are teaching people about uh, uh, how to fight uh, disinformation and fake news, it's not only about talking about the technical things that you can do. You know, it's also about, okay, you need to reflect about yourself. Think about your own mind and how you react, you know? And this is an exercise, Barry. This, there's no magical solution for this. It's just that everyone has it. Uh, I have it. I've been, you know, deceived by my bias many times in my life and probably will in the future. But only the fact that you are aware of this, when you encounter information, you go like, okay, why do I like this? It's just because, you know, it conforms my to my previous beliefs or it is because it is true so you have to ask yourself this all the time as i said to you before it's very important in libraries if i'm putting out books i you know of course in your mind oh i agree with this i like the point this book's on. i'll put that one on the shelf but i have to make sure to put the one on that oh i don't really agree with that but that that has to go up too you know and you to watch your own biases we all have it you know in libraries in particular we we put out all the information out there for people we're neutral when it comes to information yeah. and we put it out there and it's up to people then to, to consume that and make their own decisions. Um, so, I mean, it's clear from what you're saying, we, I mean, not only the companies themselves, the tech companies have responsibility, we have responsibility as well yeah. to, to watch our own biases, to be aware of them. And I think that's the first step is being aware of what our own biases are and catching ourselves. But that said, what are the responsibilities of the media and tech companies in relation to the, the spread of misinformation? How can they fix the problem? And the other question is, do they want to fix the problem? And um, do they need to be forced, cajoled, pushed into it? What well, do you think? We have a lot of responsibility, definitely. I mean, I think today we, we went through a few of, uh, you know, the characteristics of these uh, tech companies and media companies. So, yes, they, they do have a lot of uh, responsibilities. Uh, first of all, I think they have to be more transparent. So we, we need to understand you know, how they operate. We need to understand what they do with our data. They give some, some of this information to researchers, but they don't give all the information. So they, they just, you know, they give the information they want so that researchers can do some studies about that. But it's not enough. I mean, for example, we were talking about algorithms. We still don't know how algorithms work. We know a little bit. We know on the surface, like the explanation I gave you about algorithms, that's all I know about it. You know, I, I couldn't go into more detail, but I want to go into more detail about that because it's important. So it's important to understand these mechanics, how exactly algorithms are pushing some information to me uh, and, and why they're doing this, uh, what's the intention behind this. And this has to be clear for everybody. When you go to a, a, a social media platform, you have to understand why they're doing what they're doing. There has been some progress. I agree with that. So nowadays you can go to some social media platforms and they, you know, they explain to you what they're doing, like with advertisements, for example. Uh, if you go to Google AdSense, they explain to you how this, they explain to you, for example, why you are seeing these advertised the advertisement. You know, they say, "Are oh, you saw you are seeing this advertisement because this advertisement matches some of the preferences that you have and so forth." So they're kind of explaining, but it's still too little. I mean, it's too little. Uh, that's why there has been a lot of pressure from governments and the civil society, uh, even uh, you know, universities. And, and ordinary people like us, I mean, we, we need to, to, to pressure, to put the pressure on these tech companies to be more uh, uh, transparent. Uh, another thing is related to uh, moderation, content moderation. This is a little bit trickier because, as I said to you, it's not easy to moderate content. Uh, human beings can moderate, but we have a limit of number of people doing this, you know. Uh, the uh, automated moderation, it's quite complicated because we still don't have algorithms and I'm not sure if we will have in the future, but like, for example, if you, let's say that you have a content about somebody saying that vaccines don't work, okay? So this is a content that the, co the, the, the platform should bring down. But then you have a journalist 
writing an article about people who think that vaccines don't work. So this is a completely two, uh, two, two, two things, you know, but they, they share the same content in a way. Vocabulary, so, yeah. So the algorithm does not understand, you know, which one is, is good or bad. So both can be brought down. So we have this, this situation now where uh, algorithms are being trained to, to bring down uh, harmful content, but this can also give another problem. So every time we find a solution in this yeah. field, Barry, we find another uh, uh, um, challenge, you know? There's, there's no easy answer for that, uh, to be honest. Do you think these companies need to be pushed to, to, to what they do, because I mean, there's also a question, and this is something I'll be discussing in another interview with your colleague at, at Media Listry Ireland, Eileen Collity, this balancing act between free speech yeah. and, and also, uh, you know, controlling misinformation. It's, yeah. it's a very fine line, isn't it? It is. It is yeah. yeah, because I, uh, I think nobody um, disagrees that, you know, free speech is something very important. Freedom of speech is something really important for, for, for any democracy. But as you said, what is the limit for freedom of speech? Can I say absolutely anything? No. There's no place in the world where you can say absolutely anything. I cannot offend people. I cannot uh, lie about you. I cannot create a fake story about you. I cannot, you know, there's a lot of things you can't say. Uh, and I think it's good that we, we have some limitations. But the thing is, where is this line? Because, you know, some things are obvious. Like if you're discussing child abuse, of course, everyone say, of course, child abuse. We have to bring down this content. But if you're talking about something like, you know, especially during the pandemic, we've been, people have been like discussing if masks are good or not. Okay. So the consensus that we have today is that, yes, masks help uh, uh, to prevent the spread of the virus. But there are some people in the scientific field saying that masks, masks can be harmful. So what we do, I mean, do we allow these people to speak out or not? If we don't, they're gonna say, well, but you know, this is, I have the right to say this. I have the right of my opinion. But then the other side will say, well, but if we, we allow these people to say, this can really cause a harm to the society because we are in the middle of a pandemic and people are dying. So what's the limit of this, you know? Uh, I don't think we're gonna find a, a, an answer for that, Barry, in the next years. This, this is something that will go on forever. And we're gonna, I mean, I think we're adjusting this better. I think we're understanding better now. I, I, um, I was reading an article the other day about, uh, I think Canada is, is about to launch a, a policy on, on regulation. Uh, with a very good intent, but there's a there's been a lot of criticizing, you know, uh, of that because people are saying, well, it, it, the intent is really good, but the way they're planning to do it is not feasible because again, it's gonna it's gonna uh, moderate in a way that not only bad content will be brought down, but also good content. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what I mean? So it is complicated and uh, and this is for for the coming years but we have to discuss i mean and we have to open for the public you know this is something that we have we need the public to participate because after all the public is 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 the one you know are the people are the ones who are actually the, the consumers of information the ones who are there sharing information so we need to open this discussion to the public and say what do you want i mean what what kind of uh, environment do you want? What kind of, when you say freedom, a lot of people say, ah, oh, I want freedom. What do you mean exactly by yeah, freedom? Yeah. Mean that you can be racist? Do you yeah, think this yeah. is freedom? You know, so we need to balance this. Actually, you have to say, see, when does my freedom end when it encroaches on somebody else's freedom or when it causes harm to other people? I mean, that's, that's what we have to think about. Um, and just to look at maybe some of the potential solution we, we've discussed the problem i suppose and we, we often talk about improving media literacy or information literacy among the general public so before we, we we talk about that what do we actually mean by media literacy or information literacy well there are two different things information literacy is a field that comes from uh librarian studies yeah. okay uh, and now it has kind of merged with media literacy because we are living in the information age. So you, you can't separate information and media. It's just one thing now. Uh, 
but media literacy, if I were to define to you, Barry, media, for, for me, a media literate person uh, is a person that has a set of knowledge and skills so that they can participate in this mediated world. I mean, we are living in an increasingly mediated world. Everything we do is increasingly mediated by devices and, and media and digital platforms. So the idea of being media literate is that you have the, the knowledge and skills to navigate in this environment. What are these knowledge of skills? There are plenty. I mean, uh, um, so it's the ability, for example, to, to express yourself, to create content in a meaningful way. It's the ability to interpret information. It's the ability to, to research, evaluate information. And then we, we come to the information literacy field. So you see that they are totally you know, interconnected. Uh, it is the ability to understand how meaning-making practices work. Like nowadays, we, we don't use only text to express ourselves. We use image, we use videos, we use sounds. We use memes are now a way of communicating, exactly. yeah. Emojis. So we have all these different, what we call modes of communication. And we orchestrate all these modes together in order to express what we want to say. So it's a completely, actually, idea of literacy itself. The very concept of literacy is changing. Because the traditional way we look at literacy is the ability to read and write printed text. So in the digital age, you cannot uh, think that someone is literate if, if she or he just knows how to uh, uh, read and, uh, uh, and write printed text. Because now they are communicating with images, with emojis, with sound, with video, and everything together. You know, children go to Snapchat and they communicate sending pictures of themselves. This is a new form of communication and we need to understand that. So media literacy encompasses all that. It also means that you have to understand, for example, uh, all the, the how the, the media organizations work, their, their political agenda, their economic agenda. It's a very broad field, Barry, to, to yeah. be honest. Media literacy is a very broad field, but in summary, it is about that. It is about understanding how the media works, how the digital environment works, and what are the necessary knowledge and skills that you have in order to, to participate in this new digital environment. Yeah, I mean, something libraries can have a role in as well. I mean, information literacy has always been something, For you know, sure. at the heart yeah. of what yeah. we do. Yeah. Um, and just to, to, to kind of finally to ask you, what do you think needs to happen at a local, national, and an EU level even, um, to improve media literacy among the public, what what can we do on all these levels? Well, we need first we need we need help from from governments. We need help from you know organizations, and this has uh, I mean over the past years, I think we have improved this a lot. Um, for example, in Ireland, we had our first media literacy policy in I think two thousand and sixteen. Uh, which was a great achievement, you know. Now we have a, a media literacy network um, bringing people from different areas, academics and media uh, industries and people from the civil society. So everyone together in order to promote media literacy in the country. So, um, and in, in the European level, we've had a lot of projects for education, uh, Erasmus, for example, there's a lot of uh, uh, Erasmus projects on media and digital literacy. UNESCO has, been, has had a very important role as well in promoting media and information literacy. So yeah, that, that's what we need. I mean, we need, but the, the thing is, um, we need to get into the schools, okay? For me, that's the main goal. We need we need to make media literacy part of the curriculum. And I know this is kind of complicated because every person thinks that the area they work needs to be in the curriculum. You know, if, if you talk to philosophers, they're going to say philosophy has to be in the curriculum. But I think media literacy is something really urgent now. And for the reasons that I mentioned to you, first of all, media literacy is about literacy. Is a literacy practice. It's about communication. Yeah. It's about the different ways that you communicate and interpret information in the society. You cannot rely on your ability to read and write printed texts in order to consider yourself a literate person. So you need to improve that. So, so this is the first step. 
And second, we have this problem with disinformation. So people need to understand how to fight this information. And this is not about technical skills only. This is about discussing what democracy is, you know, what truth is, what it means to be a citizen, what it means to, to live in a society collaboratively, you know. Uh, uh, so it's, it, it goes beyond the technical aspect of the digital technology, but involves also with discussing our role in the society, our bias, as you said. So for me, uh, uh, on the local level, what we need to do is, with the help of libraries, for example, as you said, we need to integrate all this knowledge and skills with uh, libraries and schools and other uh, NGOs uh, and try to get media literacy to, to, to the curriculum in schools. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> and it seems that as with so many problems, different problems, education seems to be the, the silver bullet, doesn't it? And, and I'm really glad you mentioned democracy because that's, the, that's one of the other themes of this series of, uh, of interviews is it misinformation and the threat to democracy itself. And we've seen that, we discussed it before we came on camera here, and um, we, we're seeing it in EU countries now, Poland, Hungary, for example, we've, we've seen it elsewhere. And it's something that, you know, we don't want to be complacent about in Europe. Sometimes we have a tendency, this is happening elsewhere in the world. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's, it's right here in Europe too, and we yeah. need to, we need to yeah. be aware of it. Yeah, 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 exactly. You're right. We've seen this around the world, but this is here. Uh, this is everywhere. And, and we, we cannot accept that people uh, can create alternative realities and live in these alternative realities, okay? Uh, we need to understand that there is a, an objective reality, Barry, and we need to share this objective reality. Of course, that we're going to have different opinions about things. And this is good. This is healthy, you know, that we have different opinions. But we have to have a common ground. And the problem with this information is that it's creating these pockets of alternative realities where people are really living in completely parallel universes. Believing in things that you go like, and, and, and some people say, oh, but this, you know, there's people are just stupid people. No, no, that's a mistake. They're not stupid. Some of them are, but not all of them. It's, it's much more complex than this. You know, you see, I've seen people that are really smart, well-educated, falling for these lies. And the reason why this is a, this for another, <laughs> this for another program, but, yeah. uh, but there are many reasons for that. So we, we really need to be careful because if you, if you live in a society where people live in different realities, how can you have democracy? How, how can everyone come together and decide what's best for, for the society where you live? So we need to tackle this and we need to tackle this now. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and, and another interview that we'll be doing, the final one in this series, will be with Eva Gallar, and she will be talking a little bit about what you've just mentioned there, about the reasons why people, otherwise intelligent, well-educated people, maybe fall into these misinformation traps. And um, So uh, just to finish up, uh, Ricardo, thank you very much. That was really very interesting, giving us a, a lot to think about, and, and I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to me. Thank you very much for, for having me. This is a very important uh, topic to talk about, and I'm really pleased that you invite me to be here today. Thank you. Mm -hmm.